0: Welcome to the 11th episode in the Agilent podcast series. If you're tuning in for the first time, my name is Victoria Wadsworth and I'm Associate Vice President of Brand Business PR and Customer Experience here at Agilent Technologies. At Agilent, we're often asked about who we are and what we stand for, and these podcasts aim to address who we are as a business by discussing the values and themes close to our hearts and the hearts of our customers. In this episode, our theme is AI a hot topic that's getting hotter by the day. It seems nearly everything in our online lives is governed in part by AI. But the impact of AI runs much deeper than our television recommendations. The influence of machine learning and decision-making is being felt in even more products and services, from social care to laboratory science. Agilent is at the forefront of the Future Ready Laboratory, and AI and technology have been integral to that. Our three guests today are all immersed in the fascinating and accelerating world of AI, but like other revolutions that take off so fast, AI requires scrutiny from every angle if it's going to serve every facet of society. My first guest is passionate about exactly that kind of examination.
1: I'm Dr. Alison Gardner. I work at Keele University, uh, where I lecture in data science and research into AI ethics and health tech. I am particularly focused on on data science and AI systems that can predict and classify diseases, but in a wider health context.
0: It's great to meet you. So on the frontier of health services and in general, how thoroughly is AI already a part of our lives?
1: So it's very pervasive. It is much more pervasive than I think people think it is in our lives. It's used in a whole array. It can be used for just... Managing traffic flow and allowing systems where emergency vehicles can get you know, priority traffic flow through you know, in crisis situations. It can be used in many, many systems, in bed management systems, in hospitals, although there's issues with that. It's been used in the aviation industry for many, many years for automation and managing flight paths and so on and so forth. And, of course, we know the involvement of algorithms in things such as Netflix and and other types of um, social media. Everywhere we go now, it's involved somehow, and I don't think people really do appreciate that. So it's a response to big data and how we can utilise that information embedded in it to classify, predict and improve efficiency of systems. In reality, I am concerned that people think of it as a bit of a cure-all. They feel that it, it's a, a system which will make life easier and will augment human experience, but it is not as perfect as people think
0: I'd love to talk a little bit more about those imperfections.
1: You're doing a lot of advocating
0: for AI processes to receive diverse human oversight. What's
1: driving that? I would say that every AI system is biased. It will inherently be biased, not just because of the data, but it will be biased because of the unconscious bias and sometimes conscious bias of the development teams because of policy that feeds the rules that developers have to follow to make the AI systems. So every type of AI system that's involved in dealing with personal data will be biased. So it is how you mitigate for that.
0: This leads us into your work with women leading in AI. Can you tell me more about that?
1: That came about because I saw a significant gap between technologists and policy makers and lawyers in addressing the problems that we have been seeing with AI systems, particularly with regards to algorithmic bias and the discrimination that can result from that. These algorithms can misclassify black women at much greater rates than white men, for example. Some of them in high risk situations could actually result in in withdrawal of healthcare and benefits. So this is not a trite issue at all. What
0: was the reaction of the development community when you spoke to them about this?
1: I noticed that there was a lot of deflection by technologists about, oh, well, we can't explain AI and it's a black box. We can't manage it ethically because it just does what it does. So I had a bit of a tantrum and said, I'm really annoyed about this because this is not getting it to be solved. And of course, one of the big problems with any of these systems and why we're having biased algorithmic systems being deployed is because you do not have diverse development teams who would spot some of the really obvious mistakes that have been made. And, you know, the data isn't diverse. We all know, don't we, that mixed teams are always the most productive and the most economically productive as well. We got talking in WhatsApp groups and we just said, let's go for it. Let's start this. Let's have a conference. Let's bridge this gap where we can bring leading thinkers in AI to leading thinkers in policy and government together so we can fully understand these systems and actually start developing systems in an ethically aligned way.
0: What would be the best advice for people developing AI to avoid falling
1: into the bias trap? A key point that you must do is to ensure diverse input and that you engage all stakeholders in actually the design of the system. So if you haven't got a diverse team, then you create one by reaching out to impacted stakeholders and making sure that they are diverse so they can have a meaningful involvement in the design of the process. And if it's a high-risk process, and this is what some people don't like, there should be a no-go-go statement at some point where if you have not had that signed off from maybe an independent auditor or an independent internal reviewer, outside of the system, saying this is suitable, then the system cannot be deployed. Now, I really do advocate for a citizen-focused trust mark, not dissimilar, for example, to food labelling, fair, um, fair trade, uh, nutrition labels, recycling labels, as such. It is literally telling the citizen, the person on the receiving end, an AI system has been involved in this process, go and see this further information. We can educate, but technology is developing so fast that we cannot educate people quick enough so we can only inform and empower them to at least be aware, AI aware, and to give them at least some pointers as to who they can go to to seek help and address.
0: Thank you so much, Alison. As Alison mentioned, AI is now being integrated in many industries. I wanted to understand particularly how it's been used in the life science and healthcare space. So our next guest is one of Agilent's lab collaborators who is at the forefront of driving the digital revolution in laboratory research.
2: My name is Paul Bonington and I'm professor and director of e-research at Monash University.
0: It's great to meet you, Paul. I wonder if you could start by telling us a little more about how you define e-research as a concept.
2: E-research is best thought of as digital research. All aspects of the research process are undergoing a transformation and it's applying to all domains from the humanities, arts and social sciences through to the STEM disciplines such as engineering and medicine. And they've all been impacted and fundamentally changed by digital technologies. And this is making its way into research. So the centre was established in the mid-2000s at Monash to help the university navigate this transformation and this change that was occurring in one of its core business areas, which is, of course, research.
0: I know artificial intelligence is a big part of your work, but it's also something the public doesn't always understand and sometimes even fears. So what's your take on how it's best applied to medical research or indeed generally?
2: I believe that the way to apply artificial intelligence is to always make sure that the human is involved. We can see patterns in data that a computer is not going to necessarily be able to find unless we tell it to look for those patterns. Now, the most exciting application of AI, I believe, is in computer vision. And in particular, it's in the support of decision-making. And this is exciting because it opens up the potential for ordinary people to be able to apply the same decision-making rules that have been trained by experts in the field. And they're able to do that from almost anywhere. And this is often described as deep learning. So what we're doing is we're training computer models by throwing at the computer lots and lots of data, which has been annotated by experts. And after a while, the computer itself or the model begins to think like those experts.
0: You and your colleague Kimball Marriott were awarded the Agilent Thought Leader Award recently for your work on the interface between AI and lab instrumentation. Could you tell us a little more about that?
2: So personally receiving the Agilent Thought Leader Award has made me shift my focus in my own research. I started to see that there were applications of AI which were going to fundamentally change how People use scientific instruments. In particular, I became much more interested in the use of deep learning capabilities and the use of computer vision to help solve problems. And I'll give you an example of what we're doing, particularly with instrumentation, such as what Agilent is producing here in Melbourne, Australia. We're looking at the sample introduction area of an instrument, which consists, of course, tubes and spray chambers and nebulizers. And there are quite a few things that could go wrong at that sample introduction area. What we're doing is we're doing a project with Agilent where we're using computer vision to be able to see those things before the operator does and to warn them that the instrument might not be operating like it should and that maybe a component needs a reattachment or that the nebulizer needs to be cleared. So
0: the potential benefits to efficiency and decision-making seem clear, but what are the challenges you face in the frontier of research?
2: I think a big limitation of our own work is the fact that the people that benefit and use our capabilities and techniques and infrastructure are actually generating more and more data. And it's very, very hard to keep up with the growth that we're experiencing in generation of new data. So we need to know whether it's actually going to generate anything useful at all. This is actually an equally complex problem because often that data to any human is going to look like noise, but it might be that the hidden gem is in there somewhere. So this is where AI can also help. It can provide algorithms and models to help pre-screen the data, to give you a good indication of whether anything useful is likely to be found in it.
0: Data privacy legislation must be quite a big factor that you consider too. So how are you navigating that?
2: Data privacy is obviously a growing concern for us, and it means that we have to be much more sophisticated with our infrastructure and our technologies to ensure that it can maintain that privacy. We can train very sophisticated AI models by using all of that data. But of course, we have to do so in a way which ensures that the data is used for the purposes that it was obtained. And we have to ensure that the people who have access to that data are able to maintain privacy. This is really important when we're working with industry partners. We want to ensure that we can establish trust relationships with our industry partners. We're finding that the opportunities for industry university research actually do lie in the use and reuse of data from both organisations.
0: Thanks for taking the time to chat with us, Paul. As our labs become more and more digitalized by AI applications, I finally wanted to touch on our own work here at Agilent to support these transformations.
3: My name is John Sadler, and I'm the General Manager of the Software and Informatics Division here at Agilent Technologies.
0: Hi John, thanks so much for taking the time to speak. I wonder if you could start us off today with your take on the benefit of digital innovation in the lab of the future.
3: So... I like to think of it as the digital lab that we've needed for a long time now, as opposed to of the future. Our customers, in general, need to do more with less every year. The customer value behind the digital lab really is about a few things. One of them is improving lab productivity by reducing labor intensity for analysts, by improving quality through eliminating sample transcription errors and sample handling errors and reducing rework. And then by improving the scalability and IT friendliness of the data systems that run the lab. And finally, by contributing to the ability to do data reuse.
0: The pandemic must have been difficult, with labs still being, at their heart, physical spaces where people work on site. Has COVID slowed change or just created new paths for that change to happen?
3: So the COVID pandemic has really driven a pretty radical change in the level of acceptance of remote deployment maintenance, support, and remote work, and the desire to be able to operate, to be able to do workflow review and other lab operations in a remote way. We've also seen over the last several years, greatly increasing concern for securing lab data systems and the instruments that support them. So these trends are not going to go away. That puts IT front and center as being an enabler of these things, but it also puts vendors like us who are developing lab systems in the hot seat to make sure that we do our part to provide secure systems that are still usable and that provide the ability to do remote work. So that's, that's certainly one of the big trends. Another one is the growing recognition that we can use with appropriately structured data, machine learning to take labor intensity out of lab operations and particularly to save analyst time and make analysts more productive. A lot of routine measurements involve having an analyst do peak review and approval of reports. And much of that routine work, it's likely to be possible to at least direct the analyst's attention to those places that really need the review. We see lots of opportunity for labor savings in in day-to-day lab operations and also in recovering from extraordinary events or responding to extraordinary events of various kinds. So this is a very promising area.
0: So tell me a little more about what Agilent's doing to support labs, given the current trends in security, remote work, digitization and data reuse.
3: Agilent's new tools and applications are designed to be best in class for security, data integrity and, where required, regulatory compliance support. In addition, we have made significant advances in our ability to be cloud-friendly and to provide not just scale, but the ability to work remotely and to collaborate with remote colleagues in our software. We also have added in recent years the ability to do very, very flexible sample tracking from end to end. These things are combining to allow us to reduce paper in the lab, to be able to eliminate errors in sample handling and data transcription, and to provide the ability to scale lab systems globally.
0: And what are the advantages for labs who invest in these steps towards more automated or remote workflows?
3: I think adopting more digitally advanced applications and tools typically accrues benefits for labs in a a few different dimensions. The first one, of course, as we've mentioned before, is reduction of rework, reduction of labor improvement of quality of output so that's i think the table stakes view but the the secondary effect of adopting more digitally advanced techniques is to be able to have access to your data in a way that allows you to do more than just generate a report and sign off on it if you have electronic records and they're structured just enough it's possible to start to enable those kinds of secondary insights to occur the ones that improve your lab operations that improve your quality that Help you to know what you know about the samples and compounds that you're testing, perhaps the reagents that you're using, the processes that you're using, and so on.
0: Thanks so much, John. Advances like those Paul and John talked about will make for a fast moving and exhilarating journey towards the digital lab and one which we can have the means to control and direct towards good. Alison's vital work is a much needed reminder of the flip side to every exciting innovation, particularly in tech but listening to her inspired me with confidence that these challenges are becoming better understood and therefore can be addressed in the revolution of AI. I'm Victoria Wadsworth, and I hope to see you for our next episode very soon.